0: James chapter 1 and let's read from verse number 19 wherefore my beloved brethren let every man be swift to hear slow to speak slow to wrath for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God wherefore lay apart all filthiness and and here is one of the authorized versions most fantastic little expressions superfluity of naughtiness which I think actually in the ESV is abundance of wickedness or something like that, so sort of a completely different tone between the expressions. And receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso Looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world now that's our section and this section does flow out as it so often does in the bible it flows out of the previous section that we were thinking about at the bible class and so we've not long started into the book of james and we've seen that james is speaking about very practical down to earth situations that we can connect with and understand he's speaking about trials he's speaking about temptation and he's now going to speak about our response, our reaction to the word of God and as we were pointing out the other night there, he's actually unfolding for us the tests of our faith and he has identified that there is a distinction between God testing our faith and the temptations that we face which come from inside of us from our flesh, which are a fleshly Reaction or response to the temptations that are all around us that are constructed by Satan in this world system and which our flesh respond to we 've seen that so there 's a difference between God testing us externally and our temptations which come internally and we saw that our response to both of these things should be different because we can identify the sources which are different, one being good and one being evil but now for the rest of the book he'll unfold having given us his definitions he'll unfold these various tests of faith and the first test of faith well if I was going to ask you what do you think would be the
1: first test of faith come into your mind reality of what I I am well the first the word of God that's the first test
0: and our interaction with, our response to, our implementation of the word is the first test that James brings to bear upon our profession of faith, upon us as Christians. And this flows out, really, of the section
1: that we were doing, as I mentioned, from there he says this, He says And God used to bring that up. It's the Word of God that educated us as to
0: salvation? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Scriptures are that which are able to make us wise unto salvation. And so that's what the Word of God did. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of God, the Word of Christ. And so the idea is just this: that God brought us to the birth by His Word, by the Word of Truth. And in verse 18, he has said this, that the purpose of him doing so would be that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, he wants to lift us up. He wants to make us the best part of all of his creation. And redemption is going to bring that about. Now, the connection then flows as he continues on, on this idea of the word of truth. And he's now going to speak about our response to and the effect of that same word in our lives as Christians. So it is that by which and through which we became a Christian, but now that which is in us, the word of God, must have its effect upon us. And he's going to show this, and this, as in the rest of the sections that James deals with, this is an exceedingly practical little section. So let's get into it in verse number. 18 sorry verse number 19 he says wherefore my beloved brethren and he's mentioned this idea of them being brethren them being family them being connected and he's doing it again my beloved brethren and he has these three pithy commands let every man be swift to hear slow to speak slow to wrath Now on the surface and on the face of it, if every one of us could implement those three little expressions, then our relationships, one with another and probably with everyone else, would be significantly better. Because no matter what character or personality you have, you'll probably fall down in at least one of these things. So he's encouraging us to do that which is counterintuitive, that which is not natural but spiritual, that which God is able to produce in us he says be swift to hear slow to speak slow to wrath now let's just break down each of these little expressions because they're significant now remember this that he's going to be speaking in the context of the word of god and a reception of an implementation of that word so these commands are going to be connected to that in the flow of the passage So when he says, be swift to hear, when he says, be slow to speak, when he says, be slow to wrath, he's speaking about us and he's speaking about the word, the word of truth. So he says, be swift to hear. Now, it is true, generally speaking, that a wise person listens and a foolish person does not listen. That's just a general truth. You can go through the Proverbs and you'll pick that out repeatedly in different Proverbs that express that same basic truth, which is you're wise if you listen and you're a fool if you won't listen. Now that's not actually what he's saying here in general terms. He's saying something slightly more specific, but it is true in a general sense. Mark chapter 4 verse 24, the Lord Jesus, when he was speaking, said to those who were listening to him, take heed what you hear. Not just how you hear, but what you hear. Be careful what you listen to. In Luke chapter 8, verse 18, he then says, take heed how you hear. So it's important that we are intelligent and discerning as to what we listen to. But it's also important that we don't just listen to good things, but that we listen carefully to good things. So what I hear, how I hear, both of these things, the Lord Jesus speaks about for example in proverbs 10 verse 19 here's one of these proverbs that i was referring to in a multitude of words there wanteth not sin but he that refrains his lips is wise i often say this someone who can't stop talking is eventually going to run out of true things to say there's only so many true things you can say and then eventually you've said everything that's true so then you start making up stuff and exaggeration takes over and things get changed, expanded and altered to fuel the fire of your own mouth. So there is an inherent danger in a need to keep on speaking. But the person, that's what the proverb says, inevitably sin is going to take place if you won't stop talking. But the person who is able to hold his tongue, that's what refrain your lips That's the idea. We use that kind of picture of holding your tongue. Their picture is refraining your lips. But the idea is the same. If you can stop talking, you're a wise person. If you know when to stop talking, you're a wise person. And there are times to speak and there are times not to speak. And so the Proverbs are full of that wisdom in being able to hold your counsel and not kind of wear completely your heart in your sleeve and just keep talking all the time. Again, Proverbs 17, verse 28, even a fool, when he holds his speech, is counted wise. So someone that's foolish, who doesn't say anything, can still be considered to be wise. That's because he hasn't opened his mouth and educated the person that he's not wise and he is actually a fool. And so if you don't know what to say, say nothing, and then at least you won't appear foolish again go through the book of proverbs lots of proverbs lots of wisdom about that type of thing in that book now here in this context he's speaking i judge about the word of god specifically that we should be swift to hear the word of truth in context and again elsewhere scripture speaks so much about our need to have a readiness to listen to what god is to say to us So Psalm 119 verse 111 says this, Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. Someone who values, someone who loves the word of God, loves hearing the word of God, loves the truth that the word of God conveys, someone who is eager, swift and ready to listen to what God has to say. Um, John MacArthur said this It is possible to be unfailingly regular in Bible reading but achieve no more than to have moved the bookmark forward This is reading unrelated to an attentive spirit The word is read but the word is not heard On the other hand, if we can develop an attentive spirit this will spur us to create those conditions that is a proper method and structure to Bible reading, a discipline of time and so on by which the spirit will find himself by which the person's spirit will find itself satisfied in hearing the word of God it's important that we are swift to hear but
1: then he goes on and says this slow to speak slow for the speaking
0: And the emphasis seems to be not general conversation, but someone who is speaking the word of God in context. So be swift to hear the word of truth, but do not be swift to speak the word of truth. Now that's not that scripture should never be in your mouth, obviously. But James will say later, be not many teachers among you. And this is the idea, be careful, be slow, be considered, don't be presumptuous, to stand up and speak on behalf of God. That is not something that you should do unless you are prepared to do it, unless you can with as much certainty as you have. And that relates to where you are in your spiritual development and maturity. But as much certainty as is appropriate for where you are, you can say, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what God says in this book. Now, you cannot, you should not, be standing before God's people, or indeed before people who are not Christians and be saying things that are just not true. Just not true. Or saying things that are not thought out, not planned, not prepared, but just thoughts, random thoughts, or your own personal opinions, or whatever. Someone who speaks for God has to remember they are speaking for God. So therefore, what they say must be right must be true must be accurate it must be god's word if it is spoken in his name now if i want to speak in my own name that's fine nobody's going to come and listen to that but you know if i want to go up and i say that well, i'd like to give you my opinion about something and that's all it is well that's fine or i'd like to give you you know some sort of personal um but if you stand up and say this is what the scriptures speak that's an onerous task that's a heavy responsibility Because people are going to take it as the Word of God and people are going to go away and it's going to impact their life and they're going to change their behaviour and modify things in their lives based upon the fact that you've taught them that's the Word of God. So it's no wonder James said, listen, be swift to hear, be slow to speak. Stop being so many teachers, he says in chapter 3 verse 1. That's why the the tongue is seen as such a potent weapon in this book as well, because of its effect. But then, thirdly, he says, be slow to anger. Now, the word here would speak to a kind of deep, simmering, smouldering resentment. It's not a flash temper here. This is, again, to do with the word of God and the impact of it on you when you hear it. So be swift to hear, be eager to hear. Be more eager to hear than to speak. And when you do hear the word of God, be very slow to react in an angry way to it. You know, sometimes the word of God has that response deep within us. It makes us hostile. It stirs up hostility within it. It affects us. We like when we hear it sometimes. And James is saying, do not be quick to reject what you hear
1: just because it makes you feel angry. It's Was radical things that went
0: against their whole upbringing went against their whole religious kind of uh, DNA that they'd been brought up with it was radical stuff and some of it would cause a reaction and a response from within them this I judge is what he's saying be swift to hear be slow to speak be slow to wrath why does he say that? well in verse number 20 he tells us why we should be slow to wrath there's a the connecting word at the beginning of verse 20. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. In other words, you cannot produce or have produced in your character that which is right before God when there is resentment and when there is anger. That is a barrier to righteousness. It's like a, it's like a big wall between you and progress the NIV says this helpfully it says the wrath of man worketh, that's the AV version not the righteous life that God desires so when you're angry at what you hear then what you hear is not going to have its desired impact upon you And the righteousness of God, the righteous life that God desires, is not going to be produced in you. Be slow to wrath, he says. Hybert, in his helpful commentary, says this that James' warning suggests scenes of wrangling, of attempts at self display, of the manifestation of unchristian tempers in the midst of debates on Christian truth. He quotes a man called Mitchell. Who calls it the wrath of argumentation? So the word of God is being discussed, and tempers tempers get raised. That's not going to produce the righteousness
1: of God. All reactions, to the views of. You see,
0: this anger is sin. People say, oh no, it's righteous anger. And they refer to the Lord, well, you know, I, I, I think you need to be very careful when comparing your anger with the anger of the Lord Jesus. Remember the Lord Jesus had nothing within him of sin. That's not the case with us. How many of us can keep our complete control when we're very angry? I haven't played football with a few of you. I know
1: that's hardly ever the case, and I need to say me as well. So, you're angry, you things you do. Otherwise, because all sin, even anger, hinders the reception
0: of the word, hinders the work of the word and hinders the fruit that the word can produce. Jesus a test of faith. Are we swift to hear? Are we slow to speak? Are we slow to anger? In relation to the word. Personally. When you read things, what effect does it have on you? Well he's going to say, listen I'm I'm not just going to speak about anger and wrath here in verse 19 because all sin has that effect which is why he comes to verse 21 and says, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness lay the whole thing apart, put it off because it will all do the same thing it will all hinder the work of the word now that word lay apart means to take off The idea is just this, that you cannot receive the word until you have put off that which is a barrier to it. In terms of the grammar of the verse, let me again quote MacArthur. He says, when the main verb and the participle depended on the main verb are both in the aorist, which is the tense of the past, The participle can be understood then as preceding the action of the verb. In other words, he says, it could be translated, having put off, then receive. You cannot receive the engrafted, implanted word until you have put off sin. The two cannot work at the same time. The two cannot work effectively within your life and mine. Now, all I'm doing is expressing what we all already know. I mean, James is speaking about stuff that we can all identify with. I'm absolutely certain. So what does he say needs to go before the word can flourish? Now, we'll try and get as practical as we can now. He says, lay apart
1: all filthiness. Now, this idea of laying apart is a common test. Peter uses it for Peter two Putting aside all deceit or all... base desires is the two things for you to take on that which is of God.
0: Now, that's what James is also saying. James is saying before you can take the word in and it be effective and you can grow as a consequence, there's stuff that has to go. There's stuff that has to go. You cannot layer the word of God on top of sin. The roots will not break through. It's a barrier. It's like a concrete barrier. Nothing will get through. The effect ...of that good seed that is sown... ...is that it will not penetrate... ...it will not grow within us... ...it will not change us... ...it will not have its desired effect upon us... ...which in a very simple way means this... ...if you and I are not growing as Christians... ...and yet we're hearing God's word all the time... ...the problem is not the word that we are hearing the problem is that we cannot receive it and we'll look at that in a moment because of this barrier of sin somewhere there's a barrier there now that will be something different for every single person in this room but there's a barrier now James speaks of it in terminology again which I think that we can relate to he says all filthiness needs to go Steve Cole um, who, again, is worth reading, he said this, we all bring baggage from our old way of life over into the Christian life. I've said to you often, a crabbit, unsaved person, when they get saved, becomes a crabbit, safe person. I mean, they don't, lots change overnight, but that doesn't change. You know, someone who has got a propensity to steal, when they become a Christian, still has that propensity to steal. And as they grow as a Christian, they find this, the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Holy Spirit in their life and that propensity diminishes and disappears. That's the work of God in their life. That's why people who have very visible sins, sometimes after they become a Christian in the immediate aftermath and, and follow through, they have to deal with those sins. They have to actually grapple with them and wrestle with them and, and so on. And, and we all have to do that because some of our sin is not so visible as other people's. So he says, put it off, lay it aside. Steve Cole says that. We all bring baggage into our Christian life. Usually, he says, we're blind to most of it. We don't realize that we're displeasing God by our thoughts or our words or our actions. But as we begin to read read God's word, the word begins to convict us of areas that we perhaps didn't even know were there. Paul had that experience. He said, I didn't even know I was subject to covetousness until the law of God began to convict him about that sin in his own life. When this happens, the receptive heart cleans out the sin, puts on the new clothes of new life in Christ. And if you don't, that sin will prevent you growing as a Christian. Filthiness. What is this? Now this word is interesting, and if you like word studies, this is one worth studying, even though it's got such a negative connotation. Uh, Barclay in his commentary, Jeremy always likes me quoting Barclay, Barclay in his commentary says that you can trace this word back to some sort of original use to do earwax. I'll just let you think about that for a moment or two. Surely you haven't watched any of these videos when someone's getting a big lump of earwax brought out. I have. And then you say, what am I doing watching this? It's the grossest thing ever. Anyway, you get this idea, and it, the, the problem is it gets a big lump of earwax, and someone cannot hear. I remember being told that I was going deaf, and I thought I'd wax in my ear, so I went along to the, the surgery, and I said there wasn't any wax in my ear, so I concluded I wasn't going deaf, <laughs> which isn't quite logical, but anyway, it worked for me. So the idea is just this, that if you cannot hear, it may well be because you need your ears cleaned out. You see the kind of vivid type of analogy there? You cannot hear God's word until you get the filthiness cleaned out. Spiritually speaking, that's the analogy. There's a blockage there between what God is saying and what you're receiving. And the blockage is sin, filthiness.
1: Filthiness and so that word is an idea and maybe conveyed that idea although I think the word is an idea of and of sin and of James the <laughs> rampant wickedness he's talking
0: to Christians here He's saying to the Christians, if you want to get better, if you want to please God, if you want to enjoy your spiritual life, if you want to grow as a Christian, and who doesn't? Then you see that rampant wickedness in your life. You're going to have to get rid of it. Not just wickedness, but rampant wickedness. Permeating your whole life. How can it be? Well, let's not be too self-righteous looking down at other people let's examine our own hearts probably won't have to look very hard to find some of that stuff somewhere in various manifestations whatever it might be from self-righteous religious hypocrisy right down to sexual immorality and everything in between wickedness one writer said the whole filthy mass of wicked moral <coughs> vice in action and intent, must be cleaned out by confession and repentance, which means removal. It's like getting that wax and not... No, I'm not going to even start doing an analogy. You get the idea. You're not just moving it about. It has to be literally removed. And then, and only then, he says, and receive with meekness and I think the meekness there is very important. Sometimes we replace one sin with another. Lord Jesus spoke about that. He spoke about, you know, a house that was demon possessed. There were demons in a in a house, and they get cleaned out, and the house is empty and unoccupied. And so the demons went and got their pals, and they came and they occupied. It was far worse afterwards than it was at the beginning. Sometimes we do that. We identify one sin focus on that sin, clean it out of our life, don't actually fill our life with that which is positive and we end up far worse than we were at the beginning. It's just different sin. Sometimes you can see someone who has you know, sins of a particular character in their life and they deal with them and then they become absolutely consumed with the sin of pride. They've actually replaced one with just another. So he says, receive with meekness. This is so important that when we do deal with sin, that we keep humble. Humility is in the idea of meekness. It could be translated humble
1: or gentle or willing. But really, I think the best... the ingre- in our heart at salvation, that word which has been effective in our life thus far to bring
0: us to Christ, that word that God wants by his spirit to use to feed our souls
1: and to build us up and to, to sanctify. And the idea of sanctification is saved because it's that
0: which is able to save our souls. Now the idea is in salvation there, I've often said there's past, present and future salvation for the Christian, we look back to our past salvation, a once for all uh, dealing with the problem of sin and its penalty and all the rest of it uh, and we are secure for eternity but then while we live there is a continual aspect to salvation which is we are continually being saved from our environment of sin and the problems of sin in the flesh and then there will be a future element to salvation, that is the redemption of our bodies. He he's speaking, I judge, about sanctification. He's speaking about the effect of the word of God as we live as Christians. He says, receive it. It's there already. Remove the barrier of sin. Let it work in your own heart. The idea being just this, that we need to allow God's word to have its effect and the only way to do that is to take the barrier away and let it loose. Let it loose. by actively submitting with a teachable spirit to what God would have us say there's a lot in this you know it's not just a case of oh I've got my Bible I've now got to the stage that I'm following some kind of daily reading plan which is fantastic and I'm not diminishing that in the slightest and say, well, you know, because I have ticked the number of days I'm meant to read, and because I've religiously followed this, then I'm there. Now, we're going to see that's not the case. It's an essential component of what, but it's not the case. Because there needs to be the removal of the barrier for the word which is engrafted to be effective, to actually work in our lives. And that's where he comes to now in verse 22 down to verse 27. So we have in the first little section the idea of receiving the word, verse 19 to 21. The key verse being received with meekness the engrafted word. And then in verse 22 to verse 27, the second section is about doing the word. And the key um, expression is be ye doers of the word in verse number 22 so he starts this little section because as I've said and here's a quote, spiritual character is not improved or changed by some moment, momentary, momentary commitment it requires long term obedience, so the idea is not that we respond by God's word by a knee jerk, positive, enthusiastic acceptance, agreement with what we hear so it's not assent, it's not even agreement with God's word, that won't change us one little bit. It is actually the implementation of it that bears the fruit. And that comes from long-term obedience, not short-term agreement so verse 22 he says be ye doers literally in the present imperative sense this verb would indicate keep on striving to be doers not to be doing but to be doers of the word now the difference is important he doesn't say do the word he says be ye doers of the word there's an important distinction there between the two so it could be the case if I do the word that might be a sporadic experience or or a sporadic activity that i do i sometimes put the word into practice but if i am a doer of the word that speaks to the characteristic of me as an individual so one is activity and the other is character he's saying be the sort of person that does what god says be that person have that character he's speaking about what we are characteristically let me try and illustrate it this way one writer said it this way it's one thing to fight in a war it's something else to be a soldier it's one thing to build a house it's something else to be a builder it's one thing to teach somebody it's something else to be a teacher you see one is an activity and the other is character characterization so it's a whole life characterisation that he's speaking about. It's long-term obedience, not short-term agreement or short-term action in view. So be ye doers. Be the sort of person that does what God says. And he says this. And not hearers only. Jim and I were talking about this uh, last night, I think it was. Uh, we were chatting And I came across this little, when I was studying this, came across this little nugget, which sometimes you come across. And apparently, because I don't know anything about this language personally, but what I read was this, that in classical Greek, this little expression meant something heard, usually for pleasure, such as a piece that's read or a piece of music that's uh, played, or it's something that you hear, And the Greek used this word, in ancient Greek, for an auditor. So someone that stood apart from and made an assessment of what they heard. They were not actually involved in implementing it or producing it, or in fact actually being it. But what they could do is this, they could assess it. They could critique it, but never be affected by it. Never changed by it. That's someone who's a hearer only of the Word of God. And mind you, that person could be an expert, could tie knots in New Testament Greek, could know all of church history, could have degrees after their name, could use even English words that you've never heard of, like Alan Gamble often does. No, I'm saying that Alan Gamble's are here. I need to dig myself out of this. Not I'm saying that Alan Gamble's are here, only of the word, but someone who knows English words that I don't. Someone who is an auditor, someone who is a critic in that sense, who can make an assessment which might even be true, might even be true. But he says, "Don't be that person. Don't be the auditor. Don't be the hearer." Don't be someone who's only apart from, not engaged with, or affected
1: by, or changed by here. Be someone whom God is with and you're making room for it by and you're feeling and knowing
0: practising and being the sort of person that does what you hear. So that hearing itself is not an end. It is a means to an end. And the end is obedience. Obedience. Now, in case we didn't understand that, he gives us an analogy in the passage so we can get this. Because James is very practical. So he's tried to explain something to us that might be hard to grasp. So he says, I'll give you an illustration of what I'm talking about from everyday life. So if you just follow it, you can see in verse uh, number 23, he says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, that's what he's spoken about in verse 22, he is like unto, so here's your analogy. He is like unto. So you see the structure. The structure is he said something, now he's going to give us an illustration that we might understand it clearly. So it's an illustration that would be familiar to all of us. A very simple illustration. We don't need to look for complex theology within the illustration. It's an analogy. It's a picture. The theology, if you like, that's a bad use of the word, but the, the kind of detail has already been given. Now this is going to illustrate what has already been given. So he says then, for if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, this is A comparison. He's like a man who looks in the mirror and he sees himself, he walks away and he forgets what he saw. It's a very simple process. So someone, man or woman, comes to a mirror, they see and then they walk away and they forget what they saw. James is saying, when you come to the word of God... The word of God has that effect upon us, it ought to. The word of God is something that we can see, something that we can receive, we can hear, we can understand. Its truth can come into our mind. But if we just hear it and don't do it, we're just like that man who saw something in the mirror and walked away and forgot what he saw. But in contrast to that in verse 25... He said, whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, now taking the analogy to another uh, point, he says, but the man who stares, the idea of looking there is not a a glance like in the mirror. The idea is someone who bends down to examine something with care and precision. So the idea is just this. You've got this law of liberty and someone is looking carefully into it. That's the word of God. Looking intently with great desire, wanting to discern what that reveals to him. So when I come to the word of God I ought to be with that attitude that I want to learn, I want to know I want to be taught I want God to speak to me as I come to an understanding of what he's saying and when I understand what he says I, I need to go and do what he says and he says in verse 25 that's the person who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein So this is, again, something that is persevering. He keeps looking. He keeps learning. And he doesn't forget what it teaches him. So he says in verse 25, He being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of notice, the work. doesn't say word. Because when God speaks to us, it goes from word to work there's something that needs to be done there's work to be done where's the work to be done? well, in us that's where the work is to be done and once God's worked in us he may be able to work through us but he certainly won't be able to work through us if he hasn't worked in us how could he possibly when we're not listening to him when our ears are clogged how could we possibly be obedient to his word when so he says this here look into the perfect law of liberty that's just an expression that speaks about the word of god the only perfect law ever given the law that brings liberty and james is actually speaking about scripture as authoritative as binding as a law that body of truth that is the foundation for christian faith and life is a law and it's a law of liberty. It's not like the Old Testament law that brought the men and women into bondage. It's a, it brings us into the liberty of living joyful lives for Christ. He says if you do that, you will be blessed in his deed. In what you do, not in what you know. You see where the blessing lies? You see where the fruitfulness lies? To the progress, if you stop at knowledge, if you stop at critiquing, if you stop at hearing, if you stop at academic discussion. And that's where it stops. Where's the blessedness? Where's the fruit? There is none. That has to be taken and implemented in our lives. Well, verse 26 and verse 27, you might see this just as a a kind of continuation of what he's spoken about because he's been speaking about work and just in case and james covers all bases just in case you wondered what work he's actually talking about would be done by someone who's hearing god and someone who's listening to god in case you have to kind of be creative james leaves very little room for us to be creative in this he says i'll tell you exactly the sort of work that you should be doing when you hear god speak so he says this, if any man among you seem to be religious and bright so here's someone that seems to be religious, listening to God and can't hold his tongue and deceives his own heart this man religion is empty there's nothing to it it's amazing that if you can't hold your tongue and you deceive your own heart So you have no true self-evaluation and you can't control what you say. That is a strong indication that there's nothing there. That's what he says. This man's religion is empty. Is this man a Christian? I think so, but there is no fruit in his life for God. Why? Because he can't hold his tongue. And he's creating a barrier of sin in his life as a consequence, which the word can't penetrate because he won't stop to listen. He won't stop speaking. And there's an angry spirit within him as a consequence. Well, in contrast to that, conversely, in verse 27, what's the real thing? James says, I'll tell you exactly
1: what the real thing is. He says, so this is what God is looking for maybe not what others are looking for but this is what God looks for
0: this is what God wants to say to us this is what God wants us to do as a consequence of him speaking to us to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unspotted from the world to show love and compassion to those within your community and in that community it was people who were widowed and orphaned. I think it still is in our community. Perhaps less so than then, but still. To look upon the disadvantage and show the compassion of Christ to those in your community. That's the real thing. That's the stuff that takes time. That's the stuff that's difficult. And then he says this, That's what you're doing for others. What are you doing about yourself to keep yourself unspotted from the world? Mind you, if you could get busy in these two things, you wouldn't have much more time for much else, really, would you? Showing the love of Christ to those in your community who are disadvantaged through life circumstances and making sure you do not have a sin-smeared character. It's not a bad mantra, is it? Christians would we be if that was characteristic of us? Well, I'll tell you what kind of Christians, the kind of Christians who please God.
1: The kind of Christians who are obedient to his voice. Chapter 1. Now, next week, next Friday, if come
0: back next Friday, next Friday, we're going to chapter 2 and chapter 2 is going to speak about another really close to the bone issue, discrimination, economic discrimination in particular amongst Christians. And he's going to speak about that and say, this is the second test of your faith. I don't think I would have put him in that order. That discrimination one would probably have slipped around to the number 623 or something away to the back of the queue. I'd have a lot of things between that and discrimination test my Christian faith he's spoken about visiting folk and helping people who don't have what you have and making sure you're not a sinful person so God wants to speak to you about and he's talking now about discriminating against people who have less than you these are the very practical issues
1: Christian living nor or diminish or devalue